I'm glad that you're here this morning and you picked quite a day to come. Uh, This morning I'm going to preach my uh, most challenging and controversial sermon I have ever preached over the last 17, 20 years. It's been nice knowing you. I hope you settle well somewhere else, wherever you go next. Uh, It's interesting, you know, the... The, the campus ministry crew, they're, they're on a retreat this weekend. They're going to come back and wonder where everybody went. So I hope you come back next week. This passage that I'm going to look at today, I knew it was going to be hard. I think it's more controversial than Romans chapter 1 that, that talks about homosexuality as sin. It's more controversial than that. I think it's more controversial than the doctrine of hell. I think it's more controversial than us saying from the Bible that Jesus is the only way to heaven. And it's controversial because the Bible presents a picture of God that goes against our human expectations of the way God should function and and who he should be. So if we were going to create or design a God, chances are we would not create and design God in this way. In fact, while I've been studying the passage, I've had this temptation. just want to tell you. In my study, private, I'm thinking, God, I can't say these things. I can't say what's here in the Word. I've got to make you more palatable. I need to make you come across better than it seems that you're coming across right now. And, and that temptation has been, has, has, has been in my heart to make God more acceptable to human expectations. Been, I've been convicted that well, let's not do that. Let's not be a God designer. Let's not be a God designer. Let's let God show us his design and let's submit to him for who he is and let's, let's not avoid passages like this. And it, I know many of you are going to leave this church one day and you're going to move to a different state, different country. Whatever church you end up going to, just make sure that they don't ignore certain parts of the Bible because we want to preach it all. We just want to take God for who he is. Everything, just show us who you are, God. We want to know you, and don't ignore parts of the Bible. So before we get into this difficult text today, I I really want to pray. So let's pray. Father, I do not want to misrepresent you. I don't want to step outside of who you reveal yourself to be. And if I'm going to do that today, may you stop up ears and hearts for people that would not hear those things. Lord, we just want you to reveal yourself for who you are. And if we are not able to fit all the pieces together, we just want to submit to you for what we do have in front of us. I want to worship you in your sovereign care, your sovereign control, and your sovereign love for us and submit to you as as the big God. So help us today. Help me today as we go through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Are you ready? Here are the questions. We are going to attempt to answer. Are you ready? Number one. Does God choose some people for salvation, but not others? Number two. Is God unjust to choose some people for salvation, but not others? This is fair. Number three. How can God still blame or hold humans accountable if he chooses some for salvation, but not others. Number four, does the Bible teach double predestination? And that means God chooses some to be saved and others to be condemned. Number five, how do you know 
if you're one of God's chosen elect? How do you know? Now, these questions will pop up throughout, and so you don't have to write them all down now. We'll keep returning to these. Um, and I just want to let you know, we have other questions coming when we get to chapter 10. I know some of you from a certain theological backgrounds are really going to be bothered by Romans chapter 9. Some of you from certain theological backgrounds have heard it before. You're fine with it. But then for those from certain theological backgrounds, when we come to chapter 10, we'll be uh, much happier. And others may be bothered. But guess what? Both chapters are in the Bible, so we preach both. And some of the questions we're going to ask in Romans chapter 10 are questions like this. If God elects, what's the point of evangelism? If God's going to save who he's going to save. Another question we'll ask in chapter 10 is this. Doesn't the Bible say that God desires all to be saved? Doesn't the Bible say that God desires none to perish? How does that fit with election? We'll come to those in chapter 10. But right now, we are in chapter 9. And this morning is going to be a lot different than last week. Last week during the service, I cried. Today, you may cry. It's going to be much more headier. It's going to be up here. So there's not going to be a lot of deep stories and moving things. I'm not going to cry, I don't think. You've got to stay engaged. You've got to think about what we're doing. This is, this is kind of almost like a classroom study session because these are some pretty serious things, a text that most of us are not familiar with, and we're going to have to dive deep, and that's going to take some effort. But before we jump into all these questions, which we want answers to, we've got to stop and ask, what is the overall context of this argument? If you miss the context right here, you're not going to understand the sermon. You're not going to understand what Paul's talking about. So don't miss the context. I don't want to lose you. Paul's overall argument in Romans chapter 9 through 11 goes like this. Most of the blessings that we are experiencing in the church today were promises originally made to the nation of Israel. Okay? God promised to bless them, save them, fill them with the Holy Spirit, etc. And yet if you look around during Paul's day, and if you look around during our day, and if you just look around in here, most of the people in here are Gentiles. Not very many Jewish believers in Jesus. So right now, the Gentiles are experiencing these great blessings in the gospel. And the question is, did God's promises to Israel fail? If there are not many Jews being saved, did God fail in fulfilling his promises to the Jews? And this is important. Because if God did not come through on his promises for Israel, how do you know he's going to come through on his promises for you? So if you're in here suffering right now, and you are a believer, and I tell you one of the God's great promises, that God is working all things for your good in his sovereign control, well, how do you know that promise will be fulfilled? Because... God does keep his promises, and God has kept his promises to Israel. And the overall argument of Romans 9 through 11, that God has indeed come through on his salvation promises for Israel. That's the big argument. Let me break it down for you. His defense includes three parts. I told you this is heady. Part 1, chapter 9. God does not elect everyone within Israel for salvation but only a remnant. Part 2, chapter 10. Israel was responsible for failing to believe in the Messiah. 
human responsibility. Part 3, chapter 11. God is still saving some Jews today, and there will be a greater in-gathering in the future. That's end times events. We'll talk about that more in chapter 11. But right now, we're in the midst of chapter 1, and chapter 9, uh, part 1, chapter 9 says, God does not elect everyone within Israel for salvation, but only a remnant. And so Paul started this argument, for those of you who were here last week, by showing that God does not save Jews simply because of their physical descent, but based upon his sovereign choice. As one has said, it's not about race, but about grace. It's not about biology, but it's about promise. If you read the Old Testament, you will see that he never promised to save every single Jew within Israel, but only those who he has chosen by grace. It's his remnant. It's a pattern we see in the Old Testament, and it's his pattern you see during Paul's time, and it's a pattern we still see today, is there is a remnant of believing Jews who trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's what we're going to see in our context. We still have not gotten to our questions. I want you to see first that God is saving Gentiles in the gospel, and he's still saving a remnant of the Jews in the gospel as well. Let's look at the context. Verse 24. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And to the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. So in the Old Testament, we have these great promises that God is not only going to save Israel, but he's going to do a new thing. The gospel will branch out and many, countless Gentiles will come to faith in Jesus Christ. But at the same time, he is still going to save a remnant of the Jews. Look at verse 27. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Because God has intervened, he has brought salvation to some Jews who are saved in Jesus. God's word has not failed. He has fulfilled his promises to Israel because he never promised to save every single Israelite, but only a remnant. Now we come to two controversial paragraphs from verses 14 through 18 and then verses 19 through 23. It's as if Paul anticipates an objection within the Roman church. It's as if Paul anticipates an objection from you. Not all of you, but some of you. It's as if Paul anticipates the objection with God. Why is God choosing some and not choosing others? That doesn't seem fair. So Paul takes a time out in his overall argument to deal with the issue of God's justice and God's righteousness. So we are going to take a time out from the overall argument and deal with the issues of God's justice and God's righteousness. That's what he's doing. We will join him. Let's start with the first question. Number one, does God choose some people for salvation but not others? 
For those of you who were here last week, you saw that God picked Isaac, not Ishmael. God picked Jacob, not Esau. In fact, we are told before Jacob and Esau were even born, God had picked Jacob over Esau. Let's refresh our memories. Look at chapter 9. Look at verse 11. It talks about these twins. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Jacob's salvation is not based upon his works, because if you've ever read the story of Jacob, he is a mess. But God, in his divine sovereignty, picked Jacob and did not pick Esau. I'm going to stop. There are other viewpoints here. I want to be fair, okay? The predominant other viewpoint, which I'm going to share with you right now, is this. God looks out into the future before he creates the world. And he sees there will be a particular number of circumstances that will happen. And he sees people as they come in contact with the gospel. He sees those who are going to put their faith in Jesus and those who are not going to put their faith in Jesus. And so for those in the future, before the world is created, who put their faith in Jesus, God sees them and he picks them. Because every Christian believes in predestination. Every Christian believes in election. Yeah, because it's in the Bible, right? The issue is on what basis. And the basis, according to one viewpoint, it's the basis of faith. God picks humans because they first picked him. And some of you may believe that. And we can have fellowship. You can be a member here. We will love each other. We will encourage each other. We'll do evangelism together. We'll worship God together. And I will just basically say, I love you, my brother, my sister, but you are wrong. I won't say it like that. I won't say it like that. I won't say it. I'll be nice. But I, I will simply say, I don't think that's taught anywhere in the Bible. It sounds great. It makes sense logically. It makes sense even philosophically, but not, what we like to say, exegetically, which means I don't see it in the Bible. But let me ask you this. Does that viewpoint at least seem fair? Yes, I would say that is fair. God looks out before the world. He sees who's going to believe, and he picks them. And I would say, yes, that is fair. Fair. That sounds fair to me. Does that sound fair to you? And if that is your viewpoint, here is where I push back. These next two paragraphs, Paul's opponent is saying, it's not fair. It's not fair the way God has done it. And Paul's opponent is kind of aggressive. How dare God pick one and, and not pick another? That's not fair. And so that makes me to believe, once again, that we're not talking about God picking a base upon future faith, but God choosing someone based upon his own sovereign choice. And the opponent says, it's not fair. Question number two. Here we go. Is God unjust to choose some for salvation? 
but not others? Is this fair? That's the question Paul's going to deal with. Look at verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Paul adamantly denies that God is unjust by choosing one individual over another for salvation. And his answer in the next two paragraphs will probably not satisfy you. (laughs) His answer goes something like this. God's God, and he can do what he wants. You don't like it? Too bad. That's what we're going to talk about. God is God, he can do what he wants. You don't like it? Who are you again? (laughs) Too bad. (laughs) That's pretty much where we're going. That might not satisfy you, but I'm going to do the best I can with what we have to try to understand what is written. To prove his point, Paul takes us back to the Old Testament and the self-revelation of God to Moses. Remember, Moses wants to see God's glory. And so God passes in front of Moses, and when he passes in front of Moses, he reveals his character. And we see him revealing his character in verse 14 and 15. What shall we say that? Injustice on God's part by no means. Verse 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So it is within the sovereign prerogative of God to have mercy and compassion on whom he chooses. It's not human initiative that prompts God's mercy. What does it say in verse 16? So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. I'm going to read it again, verse 16. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So it's not about human desire. It's not about human effort that somehow prompts and stirs up God's mercy. But his mercy, according to the word, what I'm reading right here, is prompted by his own sovereign choice. Remember, God chose Jacob over Esau. Before they were even born, before they even did anything good or bad. God doesn't pick people because they first picked him. People pick God because God has already picked them way in advance and stirred them up to pick him. Because it's not about human will or exertion, but it's about God's sovereign prerogative to choose to have mercy on whomever he wants. That's controversial. Let's make it even more controversial by saying, well, the flip side holds true. That not only does he have mercy on who he wants, but he also hardens whom he wants. Look at verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. So not only does he have mercy on whom he wants, but he also, he hardens whomever he wants. Harden has the idea of God keeping someone unresponsive to his work. And here we have the example of Pharaoh. Remember good old Pharaoh? He was the one that refused to let the people go. He wouldn't let the people of Israelites go from their slavery in Egypt. And we are told that God hardened his heart that has kept him unresponsive and unrepentant in the face of all the miracles. And some will say, not so fast, Pastor Jason, because if you read the Old Testament, you will see that Pharaoh also hardened his heart. And so God just came along, saw Pharaoh hardening his heart, and said, okay, Pharaoh, I'm going to keep you in the state you were in. 
So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to confirm you in your hardness. And then I'll say, well, not so fast, EBF, because if you read the story of the Exodus in the context, you will see before any of the plagues even begin, God comes along and says, all right, watch this. I am going to harden Pharaoh's heart. So who was the first mover? It seems to be God in this context. And we see that what is going on here, that God is going to harden Pharaoh's heart and raise him up in our passage, raise him up for this very purpose so that when God worked all the plagues of judgment, his power might be shown and his name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So God brings Pharaoh on the scene to show God's power and to proclaim his name in judgment to the Egyptians and in mercy to the Israelites. And the reason why Paul's bringing this up, because he's saying even in this very day, God is hardening some Israelites to show his power and judgment, but he's also doing it to show his mercy on the Gentiles. There's a connection that Paul is making between what happened in Moses' time and what's happening in his time. So God demonstrates his righteousness and his justice both in salvation and judgment. God demonstrates his righteousness and his justice, both in salvation and judgment. What was the initial question again? Is God unrighteous or unjust to choose some and not others? And Paul would say, no way. God can choose who he wants for salvation. He can harden who he wants. It's God's sovereign choice. Now, brothers and sisters, if, unless I'm misunderstanding the word of God, God would be just, he would be righteous to send us all to hell forever. For he is holy. And the number one problem that we like to always raise as human beings, and particularly as Americans, is why doesn't God save everybody? But if you read the Bible, the problem that the Bible's trying to address is why would a holy God save anybody? So we, we're dealing with two different questions. We're like, why doesn't God save everybody? And the Bible's like, well, why should he save anybody? But in mercy, he chooses to save some. And you may think, okay, 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 okay. Well, if that's true, that he chooses to save some and others, if that's really true, then there's no way God can hold people accountable. There's no way that he could ever blame them because it's not their fault. God's the one that did it. It's his fault, not their fault. Which brings us to question number three. Number three says, how can God still blame or hold humans accountable if he chooses some for salvation but not others? Isn't that a great question? That's a great question. But I didn't make it up. It's actually in the text. All right, so look at the text, all right? Verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? <laughs> so if God is picking and choosing, okay, you're in, you're not, you're in, then how in the world can God ever blame or hold anyone accountable for choosing him? That is a great question. But once again, uh, Paul's not going to make you feel better. <laughs> He's going to say, uh, God is God and he can do what he wants. And Paul even takes it a little further. Look what he says in verse 20. But who are you, oh man, to answer back to God? 
Who are you, oh man? Who are you, oh woman? To say, God, what are you doing? Why did you set it up this way? You're not right. This is not good. And then he continues. Verse 20, but who are you, oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? And now Paul's bringing into play this familiar Old Testament analogy of the potter and the clay. Real easy. This is not hard to understand. Who's the potter? God. Who's the clay? It, you. It's humans, okay? And the potter can make whatever he wants. Last night during family worship with my kids, I went around and I asked them, what have they made out of clay? And they've made, they've made some cups and they've made some little figurines. And, I, and then we try to get at that they were the ones, when they made whatever they made, they're the ones who molded and shaped the clay to make what they wanted. They were the potter. And the idea here is that God makes what he wants. And the potter can make some items for honorable use, like a chalice, or he can make some items for dishonorable use, like a latrine. And in the same way, God can choose some to be saved and others not to be saved. And no one has the right to say, why have you made me like this? God can do what he wants. Now you're going to think that I'm going to freak you out. Because I'm going to say humans are still accountable and humans are still responsible to exercise faith. And you may think that's doublespeak. That's exactly what Paul's saying here. Because the question is, how can God hold us accountable? And the fact is, he can Because I'm speaking to you and I'm reasoning with you right now to put your faith in Jesus Christ. And I would say that God's sovereign choice and human responsibility go together and are compatible. I believe there's Romans chapter 9 and there's Romans chapter 10 and both are taught in Scripture. And if you object, if if you object, if you're here and you're objecting, you're saying there is no way that God can elect and that we still have to exercise faith or we're held accountable. And if you say, there's no way the two of those go together, I'm just going to repeat the words of Scripture. Who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Who are you, O woman, to talk back to God? He's the one that set it up that way. Now we come to the hardest part. Does the Bible teach double predestination. God chooses some to be saved and he chooses others to be condemned. Those in favor of double predestination like to say it's double or nothing. And those against double predestination like to call it double trouble. So the question is, does the Bible teach double predestination? That he chooses and picks some to be saved and others to be contempt. Now, before I give you the answer, I'm going to get inside your head. Not try to get inside your head, but actually I'm trying to figure out what you're thinking right now. And I think I got it like this. All right. 
There's 100 people lined up. Just imagine all the way from the back wall all the way to here, just like 100 people lined up. And maybe you think that those 100 people are neutral. And God comes along and says, you're in. No, you're out. So you go to hell. I pick you. You go to heaven. Okay, I pick you. Okay, you go to hell. You go to any, mini, mighty mo, duck, duck, goose. You're in. Whatever. But I don't know what's going on in your head. God's picking. You're going to hell. You're going to hell. Here's the problem if that's what you're thinking. No one is neutral. The Bible says that we're all sinners condemned under God's wrath. So it's like this. We are all facing this way. And every single person born in sin, all of us, we're all headed to hell. His wrath is on us. We are going to spend forever in hell. We are all moving this direction because of sin. And God, in his mercy and in his grace, chooses to come along and turn some of us around. He chooses to come along and turn some of us around so that we'll believe and put our faith in Jesus. And that's why I don't like the idea of double predestination because it makes me think that there's this neutralness about us when the reality is we are all going this way. And he is right to let all of us continue to go this way. But in mercy, he chooses to save some. And another question you've got to have is, why did he do it this way? Why did he do it this way? So first, can I answer outside of the context that we're in now? Can I change our first thing? Okay, here's the reason why I think from other scriptures that God did it this way. Because if he didn't do it this way, all of us would just go off the cliff into hell. Because the Bible says that no one is righteous, no, not one. The Bible says in Romans chapter 3 that none seek God. We're not just going along. We're going, you know what, God, I think you're a good idea. I'm going to follow you now. It doesn't happen. No, no, no one seeks God. In fact, the Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 2 that all of us are dead in our sins. I don't think you understand what dead means. Dead means dead. I mean, maybe you have this picture like we're in this pit of our sin, like a deep well. And and God says, I'm going to lower this rope of the gospel. And in faith, I just want you to tie it around you and hold on. And I'm going to pull you up. Maybe that's the image you have of salvation. But get this. The Bible says, you're dead. And I'm not going to be tying. not going to be seeing any rope. You're face down in the mud, dead. Bible says it. You're dead. And in order for you to be made alive, he's got to come and intervene and pick you up himself and make you alive. And as he makes you alive, you respond in faith. So why did God set it up this way? Because if he didn't set it up this way, all of us would go to hell. That's an explanation from other parts of the Bible. And that's tough to, that's tough to take in. But the explanation given in Romans 9 are the most two hardest verses in the Bible to take in. Because there's another explanation on why he set up this way. And this has got to be the most unpopular teaching right in these next two verses. Why did God set it up this way? Look at the answer in 22 and 23. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath, prepared for destruction 
in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. And he's saying that God has set it up this way where some will continue on to hell and some will be shown mercy. And the reason why he says here that God has set it up is to highlight his wrath and to highlight his mercy. Just as God didn't wipe out Pharaoh but kept him around to show his wrath and his power and also his mercy to the Israelites. So let's take the first idea of God desiring to show his wrath and power. And here's the most troubling question of all. And it's got to, it's got to trouble us. We've got to feel it in our hearts. It's this question here. Why would God create humans that were already destined for hell? Why would God create humans that were already destined for hell? And the hard answer that I'm not making this up, I would never create this. This is what's given here. In verse 22, it said that he did it this way, to show his wrath and to make known his power. God did it this way to demonstrate his justice in punishing sinners. God set it up this way because they are justly getting the condemnation they deserve as God displays his power and wrath and manifests his holiness. This, this is, is, is emotional. This, this should, we should really feel this one. This is hard. Wayne Grudem has put it this way, a great theologian. He says this concerning this verse. He says, we must never begin to wish that the Bible was written in another way or that it did not contain these verses. We are obligated both to believe it and accept it as fair and just of God, even though it still causes us to tremble in horror as we think of it. Why did God set it up this way? Well, to demonstrate his, his wrath and his power and his judgment. But it's also set up this way to demonstrate his mercy. Look at the next verse, 23. The riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. I'll read it again, verse 23. The riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. In other words, as we're all headed this way to hell, the backdrop of God's wrath is majority going this way. He has mercy on some, and so his mercy is set against the backdrop of his judgment, and it highlights his mercy. Just like this winter has been terrible, like it's never going to end, and it's been lasting for several months, and as spring starts to break through, it's highlighted against the backdrop of this terrible winter. The same thing, God has set it up this way so that we will highlight and magnify him, not only in his power, but also it highlights his mercy. This teaching should really humble us and should keep us in the fear of God because God does not have to save anybody. Be totally just and holy, let us all just go. But in mercy, he chooses to save some. Well, then to the last question. How do you know? And if you're one of God's chosen elect, 
I mean, is it, is it, a, is it like that book and movie, like Divergent? Like, hey, hook me up. Let me know if I'm Divergent. Does that work with any of you? Okay, never mind. All right, so the question is, is there like an elect indicator? Like a blood, blood thing? Let me know. Am I elect? Me? Was there, is there some test that I can, you can give me? You're elect. You're not. Hey, the Bible says this. In Acts 16.31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Exercise your faith in Jesus and you'll be saved. It says in the book of John, in John chapter 1, verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Jesus died in the place of sinners to reconcile them to the God. They can repent of their sins and put their faith in Jesus. And so I'm asking you right now, have you repented of your sins and put your faith in Jesus? God's sovereign choice was never meant to nullify your responsibility to repent and believe. There should never be someone in here who says, I want to believe, but I am not one of the elect." No one should ever say that. I want to believe, but I am not one of the elect. The call goes out to you in this room of what we see on the human level, and I preach the gospel to you. You repent and put your faith in Jesus. You will be forgiven forever. But even those of us who have repented, did you know the Bible actually says once you are a believer, you are to do something to confirm your election. There is something you can do as a believer so that you can know that you are elect. The Bible tells us to actually do this. It comes from the book of 2 Peter. 2 Peter wants you to do this. Peter says this, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you would never fall. Now, the qualities talked about here in the context of the qualities of love and holiness. The elect are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. But those who are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone will produce fruit, will produce good works, which will be a confirmation of your election. So as you're walking in holiness, not perfection, as you're loving other people, not perfectly, within the church, we can encourage one another in our faith. But if we do not see fruit in one another's lives, we want to challenge one another. It's like, brother, are you, do you even know the Lord? Are you sure you're even one of the elect? But as we see others walking in holiness and in love, we can confirm our calling and election within others and within ourselves. It's based upon God's mercy and grace that saves us and produces works. This has been hard teaching. Some of you may have never heard it before. And I know you may react strongly, but I want you to react strongly within community. Please do not yell at your ethos leader. Come and yell at me. It's okay. But talk about this. Digest this in community. This is good stuff to talk about and to think about. And as you go out from here, many of you will leave here in the future as you graduate, as you get a different job, move around the country, around the world. Please go to a church 
that teaches the whole Bible. Don't go to a church that's going to leave off passages like Romans 9 because they think, oh, that's just too hard. We don't want people to know that part about God. Brothers and sisters, God is God. He is who he is. And if you're leaving out parts of God, you are designing your own God, and that is not God. So let's do this. Let's leave all the designing of humans behind. And let's worship God for who he is, who he's revealed himself to be, in his design. And may we worship him and submit to him and praise him for his mercy. Let's pray. Lord, we want to highlight your mercy invading our lives. For if you did not invade us, we would not be part of the remnant left here in Evanston. And Lord, where we struggle with these things that are written in your word that clash with our understanding of the way things should be about you, help us mold our hearts. Take our heart and speak what is true. Speak what is true from your word and all the competing voices from this world, all the competing voices within our lives, may those be kicked out and may you speak what is true. And where we cannot put it all together or make it match perfectly or fit the way we want it to fit, may we submit to you as a sovereign God who's not only sovereign in your choice, but sovereign in our lives, working for our good, for your glory, because you are a God who keeps your promises. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.